0: Dublin. Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing.
1: Greetings, this is Paul Holdengraber, your host for the Quarantine Tapes, brought to you by Onassis LA and DubLab. I am thrilled to announce that we have asked various former Quarantine Tape guests to host during a week guests of their choice in total freedom. They have absolute carte blanche. This week, I have asked the very great poet Naomi Shia Nye to guest host. I hope you will enjoy these quarantine tapes.
0: Hello? Hello. Is this Kathy Song? Yes. I'm so happy to hear your voice, Kathy. This is Naomi Nye, your old friend, calling you. I would love to have you describe exactly where you're speaking from today.
1: Oh, it's so wonderful to hear your voice, Naomi. I've missed you. Oh, I've missed you too. I am in my little office. Uh, I'm in Honolulu, Hawaii. And it's 10 o'clock our time. It's a beautiful winter day. Finally, it's cooler now. And I'm sitting and looking at my backyard with the mango trees and um, some palms and some ginger and I feel very lucky that I am here. And you've been there
0: on that gorgeous hillside for the entire
1: time of quarantine, is that correct? That's correct. We were on the Big Island in Volcano where we often spend part of our time and then we came back right when COVID happened and we you know, went into lockdown here And so I haven't been back to Volcano, which I'm very sad about. But I'm here on Oahu in Kaimuki, up on the hill, overlooking Diamond Head. So it's still pretty nice.
0: And you see the ocean out there. You have the vast sky. And I was very touched in a message from you where you talked about walking in your neighborhood with, how would you describe your walks? during quarantine? Have they felt more deliberate? Have you walked more slowly? How has it been different if it has been?
1: It's been different in the sense that it's my only physical activity. So I walk Every day. In the past, I wouldn't walk every day because there were other things that I did physically. So it's something I really look forward to. I get up very early, about six in the morning. It's dark now, but I start walking and I climb up straight up this hill that's uh, Wilhelmina Rye. So it's this very steep walk where I get my cardio. And along the way, I just see friends and we wave. And then I've met this one wonderful, wonderful, neighbor. And she and I become very good friends on our walks together. And um, just admiring the views and just being feeling very, very fortunate that during this, this time when there's so much suffering, I feel very lucky that I'm in this place that for the most part has stayed pretty, pretty safe. And I think it's because we're an island. Yes. Yes. And
0: you live in a family with uh, many medical people. Your husband is a (laughs) retired doctor. You have other medical people in your children and their spouses. So did you take
1: the whole quarantine quite seriously from the outset? Very seriously. When we were still in volcano on the big island, and we were talking to our son, our eldest son, who is an ER doctor in the Bay Area, he was already starting to know the, uh, the seriousness of it. And he was telling us what we had to do when we came back to Oahu, we weren't to see anybody, we were to just quickly go to a big box store and get a lot of provisions and stay put. So we've been really, really paying attention to it. We take it very seriously. Mm. Mm. Now, you had a unique
0: situation, Kathy, because you had a book, an amazing book, I must say, because I had the privilege of reading it before it even came out, Uh, your first book of short stories, correct? Yes. It came out right at the headwaters of the quarantine isolation period, which is a strange experience for a writer. Uh, Your book is called All the Love in the World one of the best titles I've ever heard. It's from Bamboo Ridge Press in Hawaii. And yep. would you talk about the book, how it was born, and how you felt about its birthing
1: at such a weird time? Thank you for bringing up, up, up the book. Yes, All the Love in the World actually began as um, a a few short stories that I had basically about my father and it was sort of in the last years of his life and I couldn't find a way to write about all the things that I was experiencing watching him age and a lot of the uh, frustrations he, he as well as I were having because he was getting more and more um, obstinate in his ways and there were things we wanted him to do and we were being a bit controlling. When I say we, I I mean my sister and myself. And so I started writing these stories and then after he actually passed, I waited about a year mourning for him before I actually decided that I was going to really complete these stories and try to write about the times when he was young and his his early life. And it really helped me deal with this loss of, of him. We were very, very close to, to our father. And I feel lucky. You and I have had these discussions of how lucky we were to have had really wonderful fathers.
0: Yes. Could you tell some of his history so people have a sense
1: of, Really, what an extraordinary man he was. Uh, he was born in the, uh, 1927 in Honolulu. And Hawaii was still a territory then. And it, Hawaii was very much a very segregated place. Uh, and he he was the son of immigrants from Korea who came to work on the sugarcane plantations at the turn of the century. His mother was a picture bride from Korea, meaning she came 13 years after her husband had been here working on the cane fields. And as many Asian laborers did in those days, they sent back to the mother country um, home for brides and she came as a bride. And they managed to raise a family of six children quite successfully. After they moved off the plantation fields, they had a laundry and a grocery store. And then my father, uh, he wanted to become a pilot. He was, I think it was during the time when Charles Lindbergh and and um, Amelia Earhart, all those things were very much in the forefront of the news and of the sense of exploration. So he always wanted to be a pilot. He also experienced Uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and all that I think contributed to his desire to go into aviation. So he went to Tulsa, Oklahoma to become a pilot early, um, right after the war, so in the 1940s. And again, that's when he experienced um, some, you know, the discrimination that um, he was open to seeing with his eyes how even though he was not a black person, he sort of could see how it was very difficult for people of color. And then later on, as he tried to get hired by different airlines that were starting to come out after the war, the big commercial airlines, he realized that he was never going to be hired because he was Asian. And he eventually came back to Hawaii, where there was a small airline that was hiring people, pilots, um, of Asian ancestry. And he he worked um, with Aloha Airlines for many years until um, he actually had an early retirement because of his uh, he had a heart condition.
0: But but didn't he also get that long route
1: in there? To New Zealand. Yes. He, well, after he retired and he uh, he, he, uh, he uh, unfortunately had to retire at the young age of 47, which I kind of find wow. really, really very hard to imagine. Very young. Yes, very young. So he was sort of at his wits end what he was going to do. So because he always loved to travel, he had all these schemes, um, how he he was going to live somewhere else exotic. He tried San, San Jose, Costa Rica. He tried to do a coffee farm. Then he he lived for a while in New Zealand. So that was all after his retirement, but he was still relatively a young man.
0: Mm. Uh, he becomes such a lovable father figure to anyone who reads this book. There is such a sense of his... Um, wholeness as a personality and his bravery and his humor and his, mm, I just found him such a joyous character to read about. And I think for many people, uh, the idea of doing a project based on your own parent that still leaves a little latitude for, uh, you know, how do you create fictional stories that could stand as fictional stories, but they're really nonfiction. Could you talk about that, that mixing of um, nonfiction and fiction? And, you know, to me, it always seems that, you know, you have three people in a family, they all tell the same story, they were all present, but they all tell it differently. So even in instant memory itself, there's that fictionalizing
1: capacity. How did you work with that? you know, it was actually not too difficult to actually just recall things straight as they happened. And of course, work it in a way, because he was, he was even to this day, he's been gone now for four years, but he, even to my children, he he was such um, an intense and um, important figure in their lives that we, we just keep, talking about grandpa stories and what grandpa said. And I think it's because he had such a defined view of right and wrong and of how one should comport oneself, a sense of decency. And the things that he told us uh, are so valued. And even our, you know, we pass them on to our children. And I can see now I have grandchildren. I can see my children passing it on to their own children, you know, but I think a lot of it was that the era he was raised in and born in, and people took care of other people's children, you know you made sure that you know people were respectful, they were grateful, they thanked you if you got a bag of fruit from a neighbor, you know you you thanked them, you appreciated everything you didn't take things for granted, and I think that's so lacking now,
0: mm. Could you describe his affection
1: for the bus system of Oahu? (laughs) I think because he loved to travel and, you know, he had spent all his life being a pilot. And then whenever he had a vacation, he would use his um, free travel benefits to travel all around the world with um, my mother. He, in his later life, still wanted to be in motion. And so he, Was always riding the bus. And every day we go, Dad, don't you want to do something else? Can't we take you somewhere else? No, 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 no. He was going to ride the bus all around the island. But I think, in a way, as he did that for many years, as he got older, it was a way for him to kind of go through his life because he would drive through all the towns where he had lived as a young man. He um, would also, I think he he developed a lot of compassion because he would always talk about the people that he saw on the bus mm-hmm. and how how he had such, such compassion for them because he would said their lives are so hard, the poor, poor people that he saw riding the bus. And so even though we might've thought that, oh my God, dad, you, there has to be something else we can do with you. No, 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 he really, really wanted to be on this bus. And it really defined the last years of his life. That circular ritual, going around the whole edge of
0: the island and having the time to meet people, to think. It's such a beautiful image. Um, Have you thought about how he would have missed that a
1: lot this year were he still alive? Uh, I know he would have still gone on the bus. We would have said, no, dad. He would have said, "Ah." You know, come on, you kids are crazy. And he probably would have worn reluctantly some kind of mask and would have gone on the bus and it would not have deterred him.
0: Mm, Such a lovable man, such a beautiful, (laughs) a person of such great dignity. Kathy, I want to say the name of your book again, because I really think people need your book. They need it to have that sense of rootedness and closeness and intimacy with family and memory. Kathy Song's most recent book is called All the Love in the World, and it's from Bamboo Ridge Press. And you will not be sorry if you order it. Kathy, one thing I've always treasured about Hawaii is how it feels so far away from the rest of the world. And in fact, it is. Um, yet it shimmers with so many convergences, so many voices and cuisines, backgrounds, plants, trees. What have you been relieved
1: to be far away from during this quarantine year? I think just the fact that we're surrounded by an ocean and the water feels so cleansing, uh, my husband, for example, goes in the water religiously every morning. And there's something about just being surrounded and embraced in a way by all that that clean water and that clean energy. So that I think that's why we have the sense of feeling quite safe, isolated. Uh, we want to keep it that way. I mean, no one can drive here. And that's what has kept us so safe. And you think of all the places in the world that are keeping safe. They're all islands, whether it's Australia or New Zealand or Taiwan. They're surrounded by water. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. What do you mean you can't drive there? You mean uh, you can't drive far? Yeah. I mean, someone from California can't say, well, I'm just going to head out to, to Hawaii, you know. Yeah. You can right. drive to Texas. That's oh yeah. <laughs> we, we just go driving around on Sundays here.
0: But you're right. It's a little different there. It's different. It's more compact, more contained. But I know Honolulu has suffered economically tremendously, hasn't it? I mean, with hotels. Oh, yeah. No, no. That's, uh, that, 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 how, that. Has that, how has that atmosphere
1: changed in community? Are you aware of, of the differences? Well, for example, you just don't notice the tourists, and you don't realize how many tourists we have here when things are fine. And that weight of all that humanity coming and you know circling the island in their in their rental cars and you know uh, clogging up all the, the 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 trailways on our mountains. So there's a part of me that's sort of like, oh, this is really actually really nice not to have 10 million people here. Yeah. On the other hand, yes, all the hotels are really suffering and all the businesses that rely on tourism. But I think the local people still have the sense of aloha and we try to do as much takeout as we can to all of our local restaurants. Um, and I think there's that delicate balance that people realize we really have to keep ourselves safe and, uh, as, you know, that's more important right now than the economy. I know there's a push from the uh, Visitors Bureau trying to get tourism going, but until this really gets clamped down, and I think there's a, a sense, again, maybe from Aloha, that feeling we have for taking care of each other and the, and the island, that everyone wears masks. The only people I see not wearing masks are the few tourists that are wandering around without masks. Well that seems foolish. I Very. mean people must resent them. Oh yeah, everyone is just like go back home. Go back where you came from. <laughs> uh, but all the locals wear masks. All the locals wear masks. Yes, Good I for every go. You. you see everyone masked up. Yes.
0: Well, I would say people over here in the on the mainland and in Texas where I am are certainly wearing masks more right. because it's, you know, required if you go in a grocery or um If you never go to get takeout and the person who's selling it doesn't have a mask, everyone has to have a mask in a business. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to read a quote to you that I love from your book, All the Love in the World. It's from page 111. And I'll just read this. And maybe then if you could talk about it a minute, and then you read something to us. But I've thought about this quote during the quarantine year. Thinking about infinity made Kitty feel lonely, lonely as the time she was caught in the grips of a great anxiety when her name was pulled from her body and she was left formless without boundaries of skin and bone. And that quote has resonated in my memory because I think so many people have sort of suffered this sense of loss of identity without having, you know, their regular roles in the world, places they could go, people they could see. And at the same time, many other people have felt they've almost discovered their skin and bone and the plants growing at their very back doors in a more passionate way. Um, Uh, It's just a powerful quote to me. And the the fact that it has the grips of a great anxiety, because sometimes when I, you know, awaken unexpectedly at night or just think about what we're all living through um, and you realize how many people in world community are in the grips of great anxiety and surely um, the people we love are too. Anyway, thank you for that quote. Um, Kathy. And do you have something you would read to us? I love reading your work, by the way. I've always taken any opportunity
1: to read it aloud, if I could. You know, before I do, I just want to um, say something about what you were talking just read. And, you know, one thing I did find in in this time was that it really reminded me of the times when I would go on a long meditation retreat and you don't have the usual distractions yes and even now i mean you we we have the distractions of i can turn on and see what's going on on the news or i can go on my computer but it's still pretty limited and you realize that um we're so you we're so spoiled we just want to do whatever we want to do at any time I want to go and jump jump in my car and I want to go shopping I want to do you know we're just so used to having our needs met whenever we want and this is a time of just great discipline Mm -hmm. and I find that that harkens back to my memories of kind of being in a retreat, where no, 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 I have to just sit here and watch my mind. I can't go off and jump and get a get a coffee from Starbucks or something, you know, or pick up the phone and text somebody. And it's this kind of discipline that at the same time that it's really hard, I find it helps me during this time of great anxiety. Mm That's beautiful, as if we've
0: been at a collective meditation retreat.
1: Yeah, and then you really, everything slows down, and you're sort of doing the same activity over and over again. But then the same activities kind of take on a greater presence because you're watching it more, and you're noticing the repetitiveness of it. But it's not something that you just go, oh, Did I eat my meal already? I I wasn't even aware that I was stuffing my my face with all this food, or I wasn't even aware whether or not I took my vitamins. But if everything becomes kind of slowed down and like a ritual, then it's something kind of actually interesting to watch. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm.
1: Would you read something to us? Yes. This would be uh, just... Two paragraphs, and it's from the short story, 49 Days. And this is after the character Kitty, um, after her father has passed away. And she's very upset that everyone else in the family has had dreams of the father, that he's appeared to all of them, and she hasn't yet. And she's kind of, she feels a little left out. And she's at the same time doing the Buddhist ritual of 49 Days, of um, the idea that the spirit is still here and hasn't completely gone to the next transition yet. So you do a a kind of chanting and and, um, participation of having that spirit, being there for that spirit. So this is Kitty, and I'll read just the last two chapters of this story. She had to trust that he was well and happy. Just as she had chosen to trust one set of ancient texts that expounded the belief of rebirth rather than another set proselytizing an eternal heaven. Whether rebirth happened instantly in one breath moment or over the course of 49 days, it was all an uncertainty. She could keep waiting for a sign, wanting him to show himself to her in a dream, as if such an appearance would assure her that she had not been forgotten. Such an appearance would allow her to accept the fact that he was gone. She was bereft as a little girl who had waited for her father to return from a long trip. Everyone else who mattered to him had received their letter. On the 49th day, Catherine did not lie down. She kneeled at the altar. She bowed three times. She rang the little bell. Lighting a candle and three sticks of incense, she would end the ritual of the vigil rite. She would chant one last time properly, voice strong, mind steady. She would trust herself and not lose her way. She made it through her voice as clear as her mind, the chanting coursing into the night like an unimpeded stream. Afterwards, she felt refreshed, alert. She knew she would chant again tomorrow on the 50th day. She would for the rest of this life make the effort. If not for her father, then for herself, a wish for peace and happiness, a wish to be free from longing.
0: Oh. Thank you so much for reading that passage. How many people could appreciate and hold close that sense of comfort in that passage. So necessary, Kathy. I read that Richard Hugo described your poems once as flowers, colorful, sensual, and quiet offered almost shyly as bouquets to those moments in life that seemed minor, but in retrospect, count the most. Oh, I love that. And it reminds me of these days. And it also reminds me of your relationship with your beautiful grandchildren. Could we end by speaking a little bit about the young and how your... Uh, relating to them, communicating with them, thoughts about them, uh, growing up, starting their lives in this unusual time.
1: Yes, the older two, uh, thank you for bringing, mentioning Sophie and Harry. They live in the Bay Area and they actually were here with us for about a month because they were escaping the terrible fires um, that were raging California in September. So they came for a month, they quarantined for two weeks Upstairs, we stayed downstairs, we met outside. And then, when two weeks were over, it was so cute. Sophie was circling the calendar every day, counting the two weeks. Then we really had quite a celebration when we could um, hug each other. My daughter just had a baby actually on election day. And we all knew that was going to be a really good sign when, (laughs) when little Ella was born on election day. And it turned out to be true. We got our wish, but I haven't been able to hold her. That's the sad thing. I can only watch her from afar uh, with my mask on and um, maybe in a little while when she gets a little stronger, a little older, I'll be able to hold her with a mask on.
0: Yes, and she's named for your mother, right? After my mother, yes. After your mother. That's so beautiful. I congratulate you on the presences of these three beautiful people in your lives. And do you ever imagine in our last minute what you might tell them someday about
1: this time we all lived through? Well, I just said this is something that the whole world experienced together. And we... we, Eventually got it right. We all, we all did what was necessary to all help each other survive this and um, continue on so that you all could, could continue having your lives. And somehow we all got through together. Yeah. Oh, Kathy Song, thank you for your spirit in
0: this world, for all the love in the world, your new book, uh, for
1: your wisdom, always. Much love. Thank you for being on oh, the quarantine types. Thank you so much, Naomi. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.